0: We're, uh, we're blessed to have with us uh, Mary Ellen's group, the Fifth Sunday Worship Team. Especially like the way Greg has his Steve Vai set up with his own uh, fan blowing right in his face while he's playing. Very nice. So today, we conclude our Romans series. Now, we have said that we've been taking four years to go through the book of Romans, that's not entirely accurate, in that we are ending at the end of May of 2015, and we began in October of 2011. So right there, it's less than four years. And as a matter of fact, we interrupted our Roman series repeatedly. We had four Advent series in the middle there. We had two uh, series on books of the Bible, one on Song of Songs, one on James. We had five thematic mini-series uh, in there on family and on hope and on church history and on our identity and, uh, and then, of course, the one on all those verses that get taken out of context. But if you add together all of the sermons, we have spent somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 hours and change preaching through the book of Romans. 113 sermons. If you add those together, that's 26 months if you put them straight, which we did not, which I think everybody's fine with. I had the privilege of preaching all but 40 of those. During that time, we had uh, eight different people from our congregation, other than me, preach. We had uh, 10 visiting scholars come and preach including a Methodist, a Baptist, several Episcopalians, an Anglican, some independent folks, and an Orthodox Jew. We had seven different clergy people come and preach, including a former Lutheran bishop, an African Methodist Episcopal pastor, Presbyterian, a Mennonite, an Episcopalian, non-denominational, and of course, a rabbi. And so it is not inappropriate at a point like this to say, so what? What is the point of doing all this? Why why would we spend four years of our lives and over 50 hours that we will never get back sitting in here and listening to preaching on the book of Romans? That's actually not a rhetorical question. I'm genuinely interested in the answer to the question, so what? Yuki is not impressed. This was well underway before he showed up. Jen, Jen Hobson. I think so what for the I mean, it, it is about us, but it's not about us, right? Right. So, like, the, what Paul is saying in Romans means something for us. But as we talked about last week, what Paul's mostly interested in talking about is, is the glory of God as expressed through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We get the benefits of that. But Paul probably didn't get up in the morning saying, you know what I really, really want to do is I want to tell those people in Rome just how much... God loves them and wants them to go to heaven with him when they die. Not, not his thing. That happens, but that's not the point. What else? Other oh, so what's? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We did 113 of them. Yeah. Okay. The adiaphora. I'm pleased to be of service. Yeah, kind of. One last time then, let's recap what Paul is doing here in Romans. After he starts off with his introduction, talking about his ministry and his travel plans, he sets out his theme in chapter one, verses 16 to 17, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First the Jew, then the Gentile. For in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. And that's a righteousness from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous one will live by his faithfulness. Paul makes it clear in these first few chapters, that there is none righteous. He starts off, after declaring his theme, by saying that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. As we talked about, he starts off by talking about the people that you would think of when he talks about wickedness. All those naughty people doing those naughty things, and you know who they are, and you know what they are, and those people are bad, and those people are going to get theirs, but guess what? You're part of those people. You can't say it's those people who are wrong, those people who are wicked, those people that God is going to sort out because you are just as wicked and corrupt and vile and evil as they are. I love seeing babies when I go visit them. Sometimes they're cute. And all of them in this congregation, of course, are cute. But these are little bundles of depravity. And I mean that with all my heart. From the moment they pop out of the womb, and theologically speaking, perhaps well before then... They are wicked and sinful creatures, desperately in need of God's grace to be redeemed. All of us. And Paul uses this rhetorical trick. And some folks have alluded to this, where he starts off and he seems like he's declaiming against those wicked Gentiles so that any Jews in his audience would say, Yeah, you tell them, Paul. And Paul says, But you're just as bad. And so, God is going to address this problem. No one is declared righteous in God's sight by observing Torah. In fact, Torah gives us an awareness of sin. Whether it's human conscience or whether it's the actual Torah, the books of Moses, all of us realize that we have nothing to say to God that we all have to bow our heads in shame in his presence. But now, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 21, now God's righteousness has been made known apart from Torah. And it's interesting, it's being made known, it's being revealed apart from Torah, but it is something that Torah and the prophets testify to. And this righteousness of God's, well, that comes through Jesus Christ's own faithfulness. And it comes to all who believe. It doesn't come to those who earn it. doesn't come to those who impress God. doesn't come to those who try really hard. It comes simply to those who believe. God's righteousness is demonstrated through Jesus' faithfulness. And there's no difference. Jew, Gentile, short, tall, fat, skinny... Ugly, good-looking, doesn't matter. Everybody sin. Everybody falls short of God's glory. But everybody who believes is justified freely by his grace through that redemption that came through Christ Jesus. And what's interesting, Paul says, at the end of chapter 3, is this is actually not an abrogation of Torah. This is a fulfillment of Torah. Remember, this is what Torah and the prophets he says we're pointing to. So what's going on here is, is radically continuous with what God was doing beforehand. Look at Abraham, he says in chapter 4. I mean, it, we see this is true about Abraham. Abraham, right? Remember, Abraham was declared righteous. Was that before he entered into covenant with God officially? Was that before he did the circumcision thing? No. Yeah, it was, it was before. It wasn't after. And so because of this, and Paul says, look, this was true of Abraham, it's true of us. And because of this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have been justified through Christ's faithfulness, because we have believed and then been able to access the benefits of Christ's faithfulness, demonstrating God's righteousness, then we have peace with God. Sin is not a problem for us anymore. I'll say that again. Sin is not a problem for us anymore because God has dealt with it. In Christ, God has dealt with sin. And so sin is not a problem for us anymore, Paul says in chapter 6. Except, as he says in chapter 7, we seem to experience all these problems that come from sin. Right? Theologically speaking, Paul says, sin's not a problem for us because God's dealt with it. But what do we have in chapter 7? Paul says, I keep doing the things that I don't want to do. And all these things that I know I should do, I don't do. I mean, it's like he's quoting the prayer book there, right? The prayer of confession. That's a joke. Sorry. Hanging out with the Episcopalians, you know, the... Bible is the book that quotes the prayer book all the time. It is. I mean, that's our experience, is that we have, we, yeah, we've died to sin, yet we keep living as though we were slaves to it. And the solution, Paul says in chapter 8, is to own, as Mary said, the fact that we are, that there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the life-giving Torah of the Spirit set us free from the death-dealing Torah of sin. As we live in the Spirit, we live in the reality that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The resources, the power, the guidance, the insight the juice that we need comes to us as we walk in the Spirit, as we are plugged into that source of wisdom and of power. That Spirit of the one who rose from the dead is available to us and lives in us and works in us. And that's good news. I mean, that's great news, right? God has dealt with sin. We, we all have a problem with sin. God's dealt with us. God's dealt with that problem, and he gives us the power that we need to live according to that victory. And so the question that bugs Paul, the question that really is the one that has been keeping Paul up at night, is not how can I find a gracious God that kept Luther up at night, The question that keeps Paul up at night is, so why have my fellow Jews not embraced this message? I mean, there's so much good about being a Jew, Paul says. There's so much. We have the patriarchs. We have Torah. We have uh, all of these awesome things that, I mean, the Messiah's own human ancestry is traced through our bloodline. We have the adoption of sons, we have divine glory, covenants, we've got the best comedians. But why haven't haven't my people embraced this message? Well, it's not, Paul says, it's not because God has failed. The problem is not with God, and the fault is not with Torah. The fault is not with Torah. In fact, what we find demonstrated in Torah and what we find demonstrated in this story that God has been working out in Jesus Christ is that God is not unjust and God is not unavailable and God is not unfaithful. None of these charges can stick to God. You can't complain that God has not come through on his end of things. But God has every right to say that his people have. Israel has demonstrated unjust behavior. Israel, instead of being available to God and being his servants, has chosen to go its own way. Israel has been unfaithful. This is the story that the prophets tell over and over and over again. God's people, given every advantage, given every blessing, given every opportunity, given multiple second chances, they go their own way. They do their own thing. And they reap the natural consequences of that, but they can't complain that God has let them down when that happens. Because they're the ones who have failed. But for those of you who are not part of Israel, those of you who are not Jewish, that does not mean that you get to say, see, look at those people. Look at how nasty and wicked and vile they are. Boy, they had all those advantages, they had all those good comedians, and No. Paul says, look, first of all, you Gentiles, you have been let in through a side door. You have been grafted into a tree that is not yours you have been given an invite to a party that you do not belong at. Right? So don't you be getting all uppity because frankly, it is only by God's grace that you get any access at all to any of this. You're a guest. So don't be arrogant. And realize this. As my Old Testament professor said, as we were studying all these stories about Israel continually being faithless, about Israel being saved by God and then screwing up again, he said, remember, we are Israel. When we read these stories of failure, we are reading stories that should resonate deeply with us because we know from our own experience that we too Jew, Gentile, whatever, we too fail. We too receive God's grace and mercy and then we use that for our own purposes. Not only should we not be arrogant, we should be humble and grateful and we should be repentant. We should realize that it is only by God's grace that we stand at all. And so, in light of all this, Paul says, starting in chapter 12, he says, therefore, in light of God's mercy, what should you do? Just try to behave yourself until you die and go to heaven. Okay? Can we do that? Maybe, you know, have some nice church potlucks and stuff. Car wash once in a while. No, he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And of course, when he is bringing up this worship imagery, we are not thinking about politely showing up and dropping something in the plate. He's evoking a world of living sacrifices in which you bring animals that are living and then are not because they've been sacrificed. And he's saying, guess what? Good news, you don't have to die. You get to be living sacrifices. And you're not offering something else, you're offering yourself. This is what it means for God's people to worship. It means that you bring yourselves as an offering. All that you are, all that you have, you bring to God You live for God by serving in the ways that God's enabled you to serve. You don't do that by serving in ways that you want to serve, whether he's enabled you or not. This is why we have auditions for the worship team. You don't serve in ways that trample all over other people and their needs. You serve in ways that build up the church. You serve in ways that enhance God's reputation in our community. You serve in ways that proclaim the love of God, not your own glory. You serve, and you love, and you bless. That even means, in chapter 13, it means you live for God as a citizen of whatever place he's put you in. And we do this not by ourselves, Paul says, but we do this in community. In chapters 14 and 15, he says what, what it involves for us to live for God and community is that, that we don't reject each other, instead we accept each other. We don't judge each other, but we love each other. We don't look down on each other, but we honor each other. We don't put stumbling blocks in each other's ways. We don't trip one another up, but we look out for each other and we help one another and we live in a way that is thoroughly considerate of one another. Not just because that's like what it means to not be a jerk, but because this is what it means for us to live and to build up the body of Christ. This is what it means for us to be together in community. Is that instead of being annoyed by the things that other people do that we don't like, we say, God bless them for doing that that way. I'm not going to look down on them, and I'm not going to judge them. I'm going to say, although incense is not my thing, if you people want to swing it around, knock yourselves out. God bless you. Maybe from time to time I'll come by. Then Paul comes back to where he started, talking about his ministry and what, what he's doing, namely that he hopes to follow up on this letter with himself and to come to Rome and to be with the believers there before he goes on to Spain. Turns out that didn't happen. Paul came to Rome, but he came to Rome in chains, and he got beheaded there. He doesn't mention that. But what he does mention at the end is this massive list of the people with whom he is living these things out that he's talking about, people that he's been imprisoned with his kinsmen, as well as Gentiles that he doesn't have any relationship with by blood. All these men and women who have been working with God to share this good news, to spread this gospel, to build the church. And all of this, all of this, Paul says, is for the glory of God. All of this is about God working out his purposes for his glory. And so to him who is able to establish us by the gospel, which is the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might Believe and obey him. To the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen.